0: Hebrews 3 1 6, Jesus greater than Moses. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. All right. How's everybody doing? Um, If you are new... uh... You're very welcome. Um, I was saying in the first gathering uh, how much I miss uh, and, and the way we used to be able to gather. Um, I miss this room being full and hearing voices kind of ring out unmuffled. Um, but uh, yeah, it's weird I'm not even knowing what some of your faces look like, and it's an entirety. But it's okay. Um, yeah, uh, if you haven't yet, go and open your Bibles to Hebrews three. And we're two chapters down. We have 11 chapters to go. How's everybody feeling? You hanging in there? Good. Um, if you're new, we're, we're about a month into about an eight or nine month long series looking at this ancient letter uh, called Hebrews. Um, the, the overarching theme of the letter uh, is that Jesus is better. Um, he uh, 's uh, writing to a group of people, uh, probably in rome um, they 're they're made up of Jewish Christians, so these are uh, Jews who have professed Jesus to be the messiah jesus' is Lord. Um, they now associate themselves, they identify themselves as part of his church, um, and th- their faith in jesus you 'll see as we read the letter it brings pressure, it brings societal pressure, it brings family pressure. Uh, it brings even hardship and persecution, this temptation to neglect this great salvation, this great message of Jesus, and to revert back to their old Jewish ways, the, the, the old covenant uh, that Moses brought. Um, so uh, he's really trying to get across this, this one point to his brothers and sisters, that Jesus is better than what came before. Came, he's better than, than uh, the, the old message of Moses. For us, he's better than that, but he's also better than anything or anyone in this world. Um, the supremacy of Jesus, that's, that's the author's single message. Um, and you'll notice as we go through these 13 chapters that he never strays from that message. Every every bit is about Jesus being better, Jesus being more supreme. So you might be thinking, are we going to do that for eight or nine months? And won't that begin to get a little bit old hearing the same sermon over and over again. And um, Let me just kind of paraphrase what the author has said in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 that there's literally nothing more important in your life than to push this central truth that Jesus is superior deeper down into your, the depths of your being. That there's nothing more important than that. Nothing uh, uh, could be more uh, urgent than for you to truly and deeply believe that Jesus is actually better than anyone or anything else. Uh, not just like a mental ascent, but but in the, the deeps of your, your, your affections, you have this preference to Jesus. I prefer Jesus over everything else. Um, and I think because there's nothing more important than this, because of these urgent exhortations that he's giving us... Uh, Because there's eternal implications on the line here, um, I'm willing to spend eight or nine months uh, to push this deeper into our hearts. Um, Let me just pray for us before we really dig into chapter three. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us, that you have revealed yourself to us perfectly and fully and finally in your son Jesus. Jesus, we pray that today would be glorifying to you. Um, Spirit, we'd ask for your help again, uh, that you would do what only you can do. Only you have the power to open hearts and, and open minds and and take veils off of eyes. Only you can take my uh, weak, <laughs> humble efforts and, and, and speak truth into people's lives and their hearts, Lord. So I pray that you do that today. Pray that we would being more enamored with Jesus, more convinced that he is superior. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, so last week, you, the, the author shifted his focus from being on the, the glory of the divine Son of God, that, um, this, this, this Son of God who is God, who sits at the right hand on the throne uh, forever and ever. He's shifting from that focusing on the incarnation and the, the humanity and the, the humiliation and the suffering of Jesus. Um, he's, he's made his point. Jesus is God, but he's also human. Um, he, it's God taking on human flesh and actually dwelling among us. Um, the previous uh, section uh, showed us that Jesus had to become like us. His brothers and sisters, he became a human, like us in every respect, in order that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest. The Son of God needed to become a human in order to suffer, in order to, to endure the temptation that we actually endure, and to do that perfectly, to, to prove himself obedient to the to the point of death on a cross, in order, he did all that in order to lead us to glory. To to blaze a trail to glory, to make a way for us, but also we saw to to help us along the way. And I don't know about you, but that's amazing, isn't it? Like it's it's the most incredible thought. God coming down to bring us up, and um, Him entering into our messiness, experiencing our wickedness and the brokenness. That each of us know. And doing that in order to make a way for us to, to, to enter into glory. And it's incredible, incredible news. And, and I think the reason it's so incredible is because each and every one of us knows this obvious truth that, that, that we we are in need. We, we do experience that that everything is broken, that we are broken. Each of us knows that deep in our bones. That we need someone to give us a solution to our dire situation. Simply put, we need hope. Uh, let me ask you that question. What are you hoping in? What, what, are, you, what are you holding fast to? Where is your, what are you putting your confidence in? And um, The message today is quite simple, uh, but it's incredibly important. So let that question kind of, I'm going to ask it to you again at the end. Uh, I'll give that away. Uh, so let that kind of rattle around in your mind as we, as we make our way. Uh, John Piper says that every human really has two fundamental needs. Uh, Firstly, we need a word from God. Secondly, we need a way to God. So we need a word from God, and we need a way to God. We need revelation from God, and we need reconciliation with God. Um, Look at verse 1. He really addresses those two needs right at the beginning. Um, He says, Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So again, we see who he's speaking to. This is his audience, the, these Hebrews. Um, and he calls them holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. So before he gets to his main point, the main exhortation, he's reminding us who we are. He's reminding us this, this really important thing that we can grasp. This new identity that, that we have been given by Christ. He calls them holy brothers. He, he's actually taking two very common New Testament designations for Christians and he puts them together. Um, it's quite beautiful. He uses both of these words in, in the previous section. Um, in verse 11, holy means to be pure, it means to be cleansed, um, it means to be uh, set apart, that you are now sacred that you are now a saint. And remember what he was just talking about at the end of chapter 2, Christ being their merciful and a faithful high priest, Christ making propitiation for their sins. The author says, therefore, because of that, you are now holy. You've been set apart by God for himself. Because of Jesus' atoning work on the cross, your sins have been forgiven, They've they've been done away with. All of them, like from, from now until you die, those sins are taken care of on the cross by Jesus. And this is your new status. You are holy. You are sanctified, like he says in verse 11. Wow. And then he calls them brothers. And he's speaking to men and women here. It's not a gendered thing, it's brothers and sisters. And he's reminding them that also because of Jesus' work on the cross, and that they are now made family members of Jesus and uh, of God. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 2, that you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're now members of the household of God. You're now holy brothers and sisters, sons and daughters in God's family. It's amazing. But he doesn't stop there. He says, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. And that word share, it means to be a partaker, to be a, a, a partner, to be a participant um, and and they're now partakers or participants in a heavenly calling. Um, it's a it's a rich phrase. Um, it's this heavenly calling. We could um, spend the rest of our time really unpacking this, but in a nutshell, it means a, a lot of things. It means a, a heavenly calling. He's saying it's not just this call from heaven. So it's not just heaven calling out to us. Um, it's, and it's not only just a call to heaven, heaven inviting us up, um, that it, there's more to it. That word heavenly, it's used in the Bible to describe a, a state of being, or, or your, the state of your existence. It's describing, um, it, it's, it's you partaking in a life in which the presence of God is revealed and actually experienced in, in its unhindered power. Andrew Murray described it this way. He said, The heavenly calling is that in which the power of the heavenly life works to make our life heavenly. Does that make sense? That the power of the heavenly life works to make our life here on earth heavenly. He continues, he says, When Jesus was upon the earth, and the kingdom of heaven was, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near. But after he ascended and received the kingdom from the Father, the kingdom of heaven came to earth in power through the descent of the Holy Spirit. Christians at Pentecost were people who by new birth entered into the heavenly kingdom or state of life, and the kingdom entered into them, and they are partakers, they are participants of this heavenly calling because the spirit and the life and the power of heaven was within them. It's amazing. He's telling them, um, you're not only holy, not only are you set apart by God, but you are set apart to be his family, brothers and sisters. You, you are now the household of God. And this new identity, this new status that you've been given, holy, and this new position that you've been given, brothers and sisters of, uh, in God's family, that, that new identity should change the way you experience life. You are now participants in this heavenly calling, the kingdom of God here on earth. You are partners in that kingdom, participants in that kingdom. The heavenly life should be on display in your lives. What an identity that you've been given in Christ, isn't it? Like what you used to be, and now he's like, this is who you are. It's mind-blowing. That's who he's speaking to here. And he goes on to give them, in those next two words, what I can only describe as a command. Um, it's, it's not a, a suggestion. It's not just good advice. This is this urgent command. He says, Holy brothers, you who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Circle that, those two words. Underline them. Highlight them. Put a big star over it. The, um, s- consider Jesus. That's... that's the author's central point in this section, it's, it's, it's his entire purpose for writing this letter, is to get his audience to consider Jesus. That's, that's the central goal of Village. It, it, uh, of all of our ministries, all we do is to get people to consider Jesus. And, and we, we want everyone to consider Jesus, don't we? This is, it's, it's what mission is. It's, 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 it's our goal and mission, uh, our friends and our family and our, our neighbors who aren't Christians or aren't followers of Jesus. It's something that you would say to them, isn't it? Like, you're, hey, your life is hard. You're, you're experiencing the, the brokenness of the world. Wouldn't you consider Jesus? And, and if you're here uh, this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus or if you're listening in on, on, the, on the live stream, that's what I want to urge you to do. Consider Jesus. This Jesus who, who can make you holy. Who can make you a participant in the heavenly calling. Who can make you a member of God's household. Consider him. But what's interesting is, is he's not speaking to unbelievers here. It, we've established who he's addressing. He's addressing holy brothers. He's addressing partakers in the heavenly calling. He's, he's addressing believers, he's addressing Christians, and he's urging them to consider Jesus. And that word consider, it's not a light consideration, it's not um, just an incidental thing, um, hey, by and by, consider Jesus. And um, the implication is that this, it's this intense attention being made. It's, it's the, uh, this contemplation that is broad and thorough, and the Greek word there for, for, uh, for consider, it, it literally means to observe or to discover. Um, it, it's, this is, I found this fascinating. It's, it's actually the root word for the Latin word star, which, which means to observe the stars, to contemplate the stars. So you have this picture of an astronomer um, and the quiet, patient, persevering, concentrated gaze that he gives, uh, he's, he's seeking to discover all that can be discovered of his, of his subject, which is the stars. Um, I, I, I love space. I'm a bit of a space nerd. Um, yeah, I won't get too deep into it, but uh, I'm no professional astronomer, but I love space. I uh, recently borrowed a telescope uh, from uh, some friends, and uh, there's a good moon out, so set the telescope up and I didn't know what I was doing. I was kind of figuring it out. You have to align it and everything, and get it into focus. And um, I got Abe up out of his bed. I was like, come check the moon out. Uh, we're gazing at the moon. Um, you could see Jupiter. So I tried to find Jupiter. It's really hard. Um, but what I what I found in that that uh, experience is that it, it takes patience. It takes diligence to to get a good view. To get a good focused um, view. And with this kind of beginner's telescope just kind of you get a a little picture a little grasp of what Copernicus and Galileo what they experienced in their their diligent even in their suffering to try to understand a little bit more about the cosmos and the author is saying here this Jesus who who is God who who spoke the stars into heaven <laughs> who spoke them into being out of nothing. This Jesus who became a human man and perfected our human nature in his wonderful life of suffering and obedience. And this Jesus who now dwells in heaven, who sits on the throne and he rules forever with all authority. This Jesus who invites you into experience this heavenly calling, consider him. Gaze upon him contemplate him. Remember what we, what at the beginning of chapter 2 was this urging exhortation. He's saying the same thing back in chapter 2. We must pay much closer attention to Jesus lest we drift away. All through the New Testament, Christians are, are pleaded with over and over again to consider Jesus, to fix your eyes on him, set your mind on him. And, and that's, that's the message today and it 's not just a, a something you do at the beginning of your faith journey. Hey, consider Jesus what he can who he is, what he 's done for you it 's something that you always do it 's something that that you do years and years and years until you die into the journey to keep considering Jesus, keep gazing at him, keep contemplating him and we 're given a negative and a positive reason for for considering him. the negative we we learned. If you're not considering him, if you're not paying much closer attention to him, you're in danger of drifting away. You're in danger of neglecting the great salvation. There's, there's important implications for that. But here he gives this positive reason. Why, why consider Jesus? He says because he's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. He calls him an apostle and a high priest. This is amazing. And when Jesus is given these two names, these two designations of apostle and high priest, the author is marking him out as being both God's representative to us and also our um, representative in the presence of God. This is incredible. So there's two fundamental needs that, that we pointed out. We need a word from God and we need a way to God. We need revelation from God and we need reconciliation with Him. The author is saying Jesus fills both of those needs. Apostle means sent one, they're they're a a messenger or a representative and an envoy. The author is saying Jesus is God's apostle from heaven to earth. So remember chapter 1, verse 1 God has spoken to us in His Son, He He has revealed Himself in His Son. That's Jesus role our apostle. He comes from heaven to earth with a heavenly calling. And not only is Jesus the messenger, but he's also the message. And he's he's he is he is who God is revealing. God reveals himself fully in his son. So he's the word from God speaking the word. He's your apostle from God church. Representing God to the world with the word. So Jesus answers that first need. We need a word from God. Jesus is the word in human flesh, dwelling among us. And then he calls him his high priest. We touched on this last week. Uh, Essentially, the Old Testament priests were mediators between the people and God. So they would um, offer sacrifices in the temple to atone for the sins of the people, um, to to appease and, and kind of turn away the wrath of God, so that the people could experience friendship with God, rather than enmity. And, and that's what Jesus has done for us, once and, once and for all. Through his sacrifice on the cross, he has appeased the wrath of God. He has propitiated, uh, made propitiation for our sins. He's opened up a way to heaven. We need a word from God, and we need a way to God. And Jesus is the only one that's the answer to both of those things. So he's urging us, pay much closer attention to him, the apostle and the high priest. Consider him, gaze upon him, contemplate him, who he is, what he's done, his nature, his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, what he's promised you, what he will do, what he is doing for you. Jesus, consider him. I love how John finishes his gospel Um, So John's gospel is his account of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. Um, The very last verse of his gospel, uh, he writes, Now there were also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, Ephesians 3, Paul says that Christ would, would dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love would have the strength to comprehend and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's funny, isn't it? That you would begin to grasp what you'll never be able to understand. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable are his ways. How my, kind of mysterious are his ways all those verses are saying you can mine the depths of Jesus' love and his grace and his glory and his works and you'll never reach the end of him. You will never in all eternity exhaust the riches of who Jesus Christ is. He's better than anything. That's what this letter is about. He's superior. He's better. In chapter 1, Jesus is the better revelation of God. He's the better way that he has spoken to us. He said he's better than the angels. He's superior to them. Chapter 2, his superiority is shown in the way that he fulfills Psalm 8. In chapter 3, as we're seeing today, Jesus is superior to Moses. So this Jesus, who you're meant to fix your gaze upon, put your attention on him because he's better He's superior than anything. The author's making that point that Jesus is superior by uh, looking at Moses. Um, is, are, are, does anyone have a Jewish background in the room? Any Jews? Didn't think so. Um, uh, I, I don't want us to miss out on what he's saying here because we don't have a Jewish understanding of, uh, of how they would. So I don't want us to miss out on the weightiness of this argument. And um, For the Hebrews... Moses was just the rock star of the faith, and in the Old Testament, no one was better than Moses. And we've kind of said the, uh, the Old Testament was good, but it was kind of pointing towards something that was to come. Okay, even uh, um, Moses was uh, to testify to the things that would be spoken about later. So these are the kind of foreshadows of what's to come in Jesus, and if if anyone was kind of a Christ figure in the Old Testament that was a foreshadow of Christ, it was Moses. He, no one is better than Moses. Uh, some sects of the, of the Jewish faith believe that Moses to be even better than the angels. That might be why he began by talking about Jesus' superiority to the, to the angels and then move on to, to Moses here. But he's beginning to compare and contrast Jesus with Moses. And he begins by saying, Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him, He's speaking about God the Father there, just as Moses also was faithful in God's house. So when he, he's, he says house a lot here, when he, he's talking about God's house, he's talking about the people of God, and particularly for Moses, the people of Israel. And, and I want you to note, he's not putting Moses down. If anything, he's elevating Moses. He's, he's saying Moses was, was very, very faithful. And when he says he was faithful in all God's house, and the author is actually quoting Numbers chapter 12, where God says something amazing about Moses. Let me read that to you. Moses, uh, Moses Numbers 12, 6 to 8. Um, and he said, this is God speaking, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. So th- this is what Moses was, he was in a class of his own. Prophets, great. God, uh, God kind of spoke to them. He, he made himself known to him in, in, in dreams and in, in visions, and he says riddles. He says, that's not the way I interacted with Moses. I speak to Moses mouth to mouth, face to face. He says, clearly he understands me sees the form. Like, this is amazing. There's this, there's this special relationship, an honored one. There's this level of glory that Moses experienced that no one else did. And the author is saying, Jesus is faithful just like Moses was. Just an elevation for, for Moses. He's, he's comparing them here. But then in verse 3, he contrasts uh, Moses and Jesus. He begins to contrast, and he tells them that as good and as important and as honorable as Moses was, Jesus is far better. Look at what he says in verse three. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Um, this is amazing. It says a couple things. Firstly, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses, and he uses that argument of who gets more glory. Uh, The house or the builder of a house? So he's he's using another rhetorical question. It's meant to be obvious. The builder of the house. The house doesn't get the glory. The builder does. And you've all experienced this before. Anybody, uh, you go to the museum or anybody been to like the Sistine Chapel and you have this ceiling that's 500 years old uh, of paintings. Unbelievable um, sight. Wondrous, glorious. It's four years of Someone on their back painting. And the answer is meant to be obvious. Like the paintings are glorious, but who gets the, the glory is, is Michelangelo. He, he's the one who did it. He's, he's the one who receives the glory. And for me, it's always when you see like a marble statue, these like it looks like a human, like the muscles and the folds of their robes, if they're wearing robes, and um, their hair and the fibers of their beard, just carved out of one block of marble. How is that possible? But you don't give glory to the sculpture. The, the sculptor gets the glory. The artist gets the glory. And that's the point the author is making here. Jesus is worthy of more glory than even Moses, the hero of the faith. But what's amazing is the reason he gives Jesus receiving more glory. It's because Jesus made Moses. So in that analogy, Jesus is the builder of the house. Moses is, well, he's the the house. He's part of the house. And he's saying, of course, Moses' status is inferior to Christ's. Of course, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because Jesus created Moses. What a contrast of positions and, and worthiness. And then he says this in verse 4. It's just an interesting thing he adds in. He says, For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. He's pointing again to Jesus' deity. Like, in verse 3, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses because Jesus made Moses. Jesus is the builder of the house. And then he he immediately says, And the builder of all things is God. So because of the premise of verse 3, Verse 4 means Jesus is God. And, and again, he's not, he's not introducing a new idea. He's, he's been, he started his letter by stating this. God has spoken to us in his Son. That's Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So Jesus, the Son of God, is the creator of the universe, which obviously includes Moses. Of course he's superior. Of course he's worthy of more glory. And then he continues to, to make his point. He's contrasting them further in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So there's important differences there. there? Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus was faithful over God's house. Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses was faithful, but in a way that a a servant is faithful to a house. An honored one, a high-up servant, he is faithful, but he's, he's part of the household. Jesus, on the other hand, is faithful not in God's house, but over it. And his faithfulness isn't of a servant, but as the son, as the heir of the house. The the son inherits everything. He inherits the whole house. He's the owner of it. he's, He's now responsible for the house and everything in it. Moses administered the household as one who himself was part of the household. Jesus rules over the household, both as the builder of the house and as the son whom the father has appointed to exercise his rule over the house. The audience would have understood that big difference between the son and a servant. By inheritance, the son owns the house. The son is lord over the house. The son provides out of, the, out of his own wealth for the house. And the author's saying Moses didn't do any of that. He was faithful. He, he, he was special, but he doesn't own the house. He's just part of the house. He, he's not the lord of the house. He submits to the rule of the master. He follows the master. He doesn't provide for the house. You know, he actually depends on the riches of the one who does provide. So Jesus is superior to Moses as a son, uh, and the heir of a house is superior to the servant of a house. Look at verse 6. Notice, <laughs> notice what the author does in verse 6. This is huge. This is where I really want you to pay attention in verse 6, he shifts his focus off of the people of Israel being the house. So that's who he was talking about, and he puts his focus onto the audience. He shifts away from the house being the people of Israel that Moses serves, and he says, and we are his house. He's, he's talking about the church of Jesus now. He's talking about believers, Christians, a new, the new covenant people of God, which includes us. He's speaking to us and he says, We are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. This is amazing. Uh, firstly, just consider that, that you are God's house. And, and if you are holding fast to your, to, to your confidence in Jesus and your hope in Jesus, uh, what this means is if you are the house of God, well, then, God through Christ is your owner. He's your maker. He's your owner. He's your Lord. He's your provider. So, He will watch over His house, and His attention is on His house. That's, that's what a good, vigilant son does. He diligently uh, cares for His household, protects His household, cares and, and provides for His household. God will care for us if we are his house. And the text says uh, we are his house if we hold fast. This is important. The verse is pointing to the evidence that you are a participant in the holy calling. Evidence that you are a holy brother or sister, that you are a part of God's household. We'll get, There's an important nuance to get here. He's not saying you are God's household when you do this. If you do this, then 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 you'll be part of God's household. He's he's saying it's the evidence that you are. We are His house if we hold fast. So the question is, how can you know that you're a partaker in the heavenly calling? You, sitting here today, how do you know you are part of that household? The answer is not, well, I prayed a prayer once. The answer is not, I, I was baptized. It's not, well, at one point, I, on that date, I declared Jesus as Lord. That's not the answer. To know that you are part of this heavenly calling, that you are part of this, this house that God has made, that he owns, that he leads, that he cares for and provides for, to know that you are, it requires you to answer that question that I asked at the beginning. What do you hope in? What, what are you holding fast to? Is it what is it? Is it money? Is it a little bit more money? (laughs) That financial security? Is it is it a lifestyle? Is it a home? Having the perfect home that looks a certain way? Do you put your hope in in getting that that promotion, getting that next step, that, that, that job that you want? And do you put your hope in relationships? Do Do you put your hope in your children? Do you put your hope in your spouse? In your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Where do you place your hope and your confidence? John Piper says, Becoming a Christian and being a Christian happen exactly the same way. Being a Christian and becoming a Christian happen by hoping in Jesus. Do you put your confidence in Jesus? Is your hope in Christ alone? That's that's what makes you a Christian, but it's also evidence that you actually are a believer ten years later, twenty years later, fifty years later, is your confidence and your hope is in Jesus alone. Do you boast and exalt that Jesus is your apostle and the high priest of your heavenly calling? Or are you constantly searching for an earthly means of hope and security and joy? Paul talks about this in Colossians 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ. I think he'd say, If then you are part of that household of God, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Are you seeking God? Are you, are you seeking Christ? Are you seeking heavenly things? Are you setting your mind on, on heavenly things? Are you boasting in him? Are you hoping in him? Or is your mind set on earthly things? And We're going to get more into this idea of what he means, this kind of perseverance of the saints um, in, in this letter. We'll get much deeper into it. But the author is saying here that there's, again, there's nothing more important in your life than for you to consider Jesus, to continue to consider Jesus, to fix your gaze on him, to observe and, and behold him, to contemplate him. And, and to do this daily, to do this every hour, considering Jesus, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Do you stand with me? I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and reflect. What are you hoping in? What do you hope for? Where is your hope? What are you holding fast to? Let me ask it another way. For those of you in the room who claim to be followers of Jesus, holy brothers and sisters, partakers in a heavenly calling, what are you doing in order to consider Jesus? What changes do you need to make in order to consider Jesus more? What do you need to cut out of your life in order to spend more time abiding with Jesus, considering Him? There is nothing more important than this. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank you that we can know you. We thank you that because of Jesus, we can know you. Because of Jesus, we can stand uncondemned. Holy brothers and sisters, that we, (laughs) we are partakers and participants in a heavenly calling. How amazing is that? Lord, let that identity seek down into our minds and our hearts. Let that give us confidence and boldness to hope in one person, in Jesus, who is our apostle, who is the one who has spoken to us, Jesus, who is our, our high priest, the one who has made a way to glory for us. We owe you everything, Jesus. Help us to gaze at you. Help us to contemplate you daily, every hour, every minute. Come, Jesus, please help us. Give us a greater affection for you, Lord. Help the things of this world to grow strangely dim so that we can see you more clearly, our Lord, our Apostle, our High Priest. Thank you, Jesus. Pray these things in your name. Amen.